Welcome to the Gilmore Podcast, Episode 2. I'd like to welcome Margaret Atwood to the show. Margaret, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I'm just going to do a quick uh, introduction, although one really isn't needed. I'd like to do one anyway. Okay, fire ahead. Uh, Margaret Atwood is the author of more than 50 books of fiction, poetry, and critical essays. Her 1985 classic, The Handmaid's Tale, was followed in 2019 by a sequel, The Testament, which was a global number one bestseller and shared the Booker Prize. In 2020, she published Dearly, her first collection of poetry for a decade, and in 2022, Burning Questions, an acclaimed collection of essays. Atwood has won numerous awards, including the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Imagination and Service to Society, the Franz Kafka Prize, the Peace Prize of the German Book Trade, the Penn USA Lifetime Achievement Award, the Giller Prize, and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. In 2019, she was invested by Queen Elizabeth II into the Royal Order of the Companions of Honor for Services in Literature. She, was also, she has also worked as a cartoonist, illustrator, libertist, playwright, and puppeteer. She lives in Toronto. There's another one. Look at this. Oh, wow. It is, it is, uh, it's for crime writing, and it's the Thin Man and the Maltese Falcon made into a really Egyptian-looking little thing. So you notice he's got a pocket handkerchief. And then he's got the head of a falcon, and it's the Dashiell Hammett Award. That's one Isn't of that my cute? favorite uh, movies of all time, The Maltese Falcon. The Maltese Falcon. Yeah. yeah it's very well put together. Isn't but that? you know, when you, when you read the book, it's very close uh, to the actual book, which uh, we're used to that not happening, but it does happen with that one. Right. I wanted to ask you just a general question. What do your days look like these days? For instance, My days. <laughs> what did you do this morning before meeting with me? Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I really need to go to bed earlier. Okay. Yes, but, but now we're going back into yesterday a bit, but that impacts today because what I did a little bit too late last night was I, I updated my sub stack. Oh, you're on Substack. And okay. I have a Substack, and I hadn't really um, done anything on it since May. Wow. So okay. I re updated it by giving all of my excuses for not having done it, which are pretty good excuses. I didn't put them all in, but the ones I put in were good. Mm -hmm. You know, throwing up. <laughs> I had Norwalk. Um, and... Uh, the wart removal from my nose. So you can go on to Substack and read about that. They're pretty good excuses. And But the real thing that caused all of this procrastination was Substack wanted me to update to a paid model because okay. that's their business. That's how they make their business. They take a cut of your subscriptions on Substack, but I don't need the money. No. And everybody would know that I didn't need the money. Uh, so what was I to do? So I came up with a model in which the money would go to a smaller charity of my choice, not a big one because it wouldn't be and they don't need it. And the smaller ones can actually use um, smaller amounts of money. Um, so then this morning I got up and I need to turn off the thing on Substack that sends 
notifications of subscriptions to my email because <laughs> like that. But I have to rethink this model that I just came up with again because some people were saying, oh, no, we really can't do it. We're living on craft dinner and we're, we're pensioners and things. So I have to I have to figure out something whereby the subscribers get something, but are not the non-subscribers are not. I mean, the people who don't pay money aren't cut off from stuff about books, right? So I've I've got it. I think I'm going to do merch. Are you t-shirts? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, not t-shirts. No, 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 no. They're too material. Uh, no, it would have to be a merch of some kind. Okay. Uh, so probably a link that would go that would get them some downloadable postcards that I will create for them. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. You I was think? going to save this question for later, but since we're on the topic, what do you think of self-publishing? Well, it's always existed. Yeah. So back in the day when there were hardly any Canadian publishers who would publish books by Canadians, and that would be the early 60s, all the poets did self-publishing of some kind, usually in the cellar. Uh, and we used, I used a flatbed press, a handset. Uh, it was somewhat laborious. Uh, we had a shortage of A's, so I was doing poems, and I had to disassemble each poem after we had printed it and then <laughs> set the other one. You have to set backwards, as you probably know. And I did the cover using a lino block. Okay. Which we could set into the flatbed press and run off the covers. My publishing mistake was that I used uh, rubber cement to glue the, I stapled the pages, but then I glued those stapled pages into the covers with rubber cement, and that was a mistake because it shrinks, dries up, and doesn't last a long time. I should have hand-sewn them. So your first book you released was self-published? Absolutely. Really? Yes, okay. I think we made out uh, 20, I, I wouldn't even call it releasing it. <laughs> we we went around to bookstores and talked them into carrying it in the magazine section. This is seven poems, you know. It's not, this is not a book. It was more like a pamphlet. But we all did that. And some of us used uh, Mimeo machines. You don't even know what that is. Uh, it was often purple. You you had this round. Can I, do you want me to describe this to you? I'd love it. Okay, so you typed onto some uh, form of film, which you put onto a circular thing, and then there was the paper, and then you turned the handle, and the Mimeo machine, um, which wasn't even electrified, the Mimeo machine turned out the pages uh, that were. The imprint was from this gelatinous thing you'd put on a roller. And cold type was just being invented at that time. So some people did that. They paid somebody else to do the cold type. And you know why it was called cold type? No. Okay, hot type was lead. Okay. And it was poured. Okay. <laughs> it was hot. Um and that's what the big newspapers were run on in those days. Uh, and cold type was a new, um, new in the early 60s um, that didn't use hot lead. 
something like that. Uh, yeah, so people were turning out these pamphlets. I've got a shelf full of them behind me. You can probably see it back there. That's the Canadian poetry behind me. Okay. You're seeing it. Yeah. Um, and and everybody started that way, and there were little publishing enterprises even in the early 60s, but they weren't turning out books. They were turning out um, maybe maximum 20 pages or so pamphlets. The first Alden Nowlin appeared that way. Um, and then we moved from that. There was a poet's press called Contact Press, which did my first um, big book. It was run by by poets, you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> they said, what should we put on the cover? What did so you I say? Made the, I made the cover. I made it out of Letraset. Do you know what Letraset is? No, no idea. Okay, so if you go to, it still exists. If you go to a stationery store and ask them for Letraset, uh, you know what stickers are? Yeah. Stickers. Okay, these are stickers in the forms of letters. Okay. So you could make quite a good-looking, uh, graphically quite good-looking uh, thing if you knew how to stick the letters on in a straight line. Okay. You stuck them on, and then you could um, make copies of that. And I made the design out of um, small red legal dots, which you can still get. They're those little round red dots, so I made a pattern out of those. Would you like to see it? Yeah, I would. Okay, hang on. Okay, this part somebody added, somebody revamped that. Mine was just straight across with Letraset, uh, but those are the small red legal dots. Okay, you can see it's called the circle game, but it's a spiral. Will you put put it up a little bit so I can see the bottom? This is that. Go to put this back on. Will you put it up a little bit so I can see the bottom of it? You want to see the bottom? Yeah. So that's your first released book. The, my first released bookety book, like not book. the pamphlet. Yeah, but that we but, did. Do you want to see the pamphlet? I'll yeah, show you it. I'd love to. Yeah. So that is the front. That's the back. Margaret, would you please read me one poem from there? No, <laughs> won't. But this is the handset. Okay, so okay. each of those letters would have been uh, uh, set into the form that you then printed from and locked in. Uh, and then you would run it off. Okay. And then you would. Take all that type out and put it back in the little 
letter drawers, and then you would set the next one. So how okay. old was I? 21. 21. Yeah, so that's what we were doing. And um, that is the back history of, quote, self-publishing. But, but now there is a lot. There are a lot more um, ways you can do it, and, and most of them are online. Okay, you, so this didn't exist. Do you, um, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a younger guy and, and no kidding. probably have. Uh, <laughs> How did I know that? Probably have a, a <laughs> lot more, probably a lot more um, ego and certainly more to prove than you. I've always thought it was, um, it felt to me like a form of cheating, self-publishing. What, self-publishing? Yeah. And I don't mean that to, any, I don't mean that as disrespect to anybody who's self-published, but for me, my goal in life was to get published before I was 30. And it and happened. And I did it. And I did yeah. it. And that was a huge, a huge game changer for me. It's even now in my darker periods, I think about it and it makes me happy. I think, well, I did that. But if I've self pub, if I'd self published, I don't think I yeah, would have. Sure. It would have garnered the same reaction. Yeah. These were uh, poets mostly doing this, and we were also publishing in little magazines. Right. Okay. So little poetry magazines and stuff like that, um, and they were mostly run by writers and poets, you know, they were not business propositions. Uh, but that was a different time. Um, I would not necessarily recommend self-publishing a novel, mm-hmm. although some people have been uh, successful with that. There are a lot more uh, writers now than there were then. Writers were pretty fit on the ground then because you'd have to be slightly insane to think you could do it in Canada in those days. Um, there were so few outlets. So all of these things happen because there's a vacuum. And there was just, there were very few places where you could actually publish books of poetry in Canada at that time. Sure. That's why people started doing that. There was Ryerson Press. There was Contact Press that might do, Ryerson might do two books a year. Um, Oxford University Press uh, had a editor called Bill Toy who was actually interested in doing this, but even so, he had a limited budget. You don't didn't make money out of poetry in those days, unless you're Leonard Cohen and could mm-hmm. sing, <laughs> or whatever Leonard does <laughs> his thing. Um, do you love Leonard Cohen as I, much as I do? I love Leonard because I knew Leonard. Oh, you did, and he was a gent. He came to Jack McClellan's memorial service he flew all the way just to be there because jack gave him his his real start and and there was jack mcclelland and and uh jack i don't think he had he was just getting going around that time but he he went into canadian publishing when nobody else was really doing it and the backstory to that is Canadian publishers before that time were were largely what we call agency publishers. They published books from other countries, and they had a captive audience because there was a set high school curriculum in Ontario. So they knew they could sell this many Hamlets, this many Macbeths, um, this many mayors of Castor Bridges, uh, and it was a set. Uh, a lot of books went through those agencies. And, and and they knew they would sell them. 
So then in the 60s, that started to disintegrate, and people started um, teaching what they wanted to, and that that was falling apart. So he knew he had to do something with this publishing company he had inherited from his dad, uh, not something he had chosen. He was a Corvette captain in World War II and ran his publishing company like that. <laughs> There's a submarine. We have to do something. Right. Um, it was all crisis all the time. So he, he would go. He was going to go into Canadian publishing because nobody else was. And he did Irving Layton. That was Jack. He did Leonard. Uh, he did Al Purdy. Uh, he did Pierre Burton. He did Farley Mowat. Those those were his his things that he did, and he built it up like that. But that hadn't happened in 1961 yet, which is when I was self-publishing. Right. I want to talk about your new book, um, uh, Old Babes in the Wood, which there I... There it is. I, uh, there it is. I have it, too. There you go. I'd like <laughs> a signed copy, by the way, sent to me okay, after this interview. Okay, we can interview. arrange that. That would be fantastic. Um, I... I really liked it. And I wanted to, if you don't mind, read you a quote by another writer, um, by Chesterton. Because when I read this book, I've read it three times in preparation for this interview. And it made me think of this quote. Do you mind if I read this quote? Go to ahead, you? yeah. Poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. Reason seeks to cross the infinite sea. The result is mental exhaustion. To accept everything is an exercise. To understand everything is a strain. The poet only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself in. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head. Yes. What do you, what do you think and, of that quote? Uh, I think that's a pretty good quote, and, and that's why I stopped being in philosophy and English and switched all the way into English. Um, because in in philosophy, A cannot be both A and non-A at the same time. Mm -hmm. And in poetry, they have to be. Well, it made me think of your book because, and I hate to use this term because it's the subject of so many banal conversations and admonishments and, you know, spiritual conversions, but I got acceptance from this book. Oh, okay. That's, that's what I got from it. And I wanted to talk to you about acceptance. And what I noticed about this book throughout it is there doesn't seem to be, to me, a whisper of anger in the entire book. And I wanted to talk to you about that. If you have... A, outgrown anger and recognize it's futile, or B, you're just not interested in writing it, or C, it just doesn't have much of a part in your life these days. Um, okay, so, so there's various different kinds of anger. Mm -hmm. And um, just as there's various different kinds of friendship and various different kinds of politics and various different kinds of everything, because... Oh, human beings are extremely variable. So, so we would have to say, what kind of anger is it? Is it anger that comes from having a horrible childhood? 
is an anger that comes from observing the injustices of the world. Um, I mean the anger angry? in, sorry to interrupt you, the anger yeah. in mourning. Oh, grief. In grief, yeah. Uh, grief. Well, okay, there's different kinds of that as well. Okay. So when a young person dies, that could make you very angry because it seems so unfair. And it seems like not the way things should be. You know, if children die before their parents, it's just a tragedy. Um, but when an old person dies, it's part of the cycle of life and we expect it. So you don't feel anger. You feel sad. But you don't say, this is so unfair, it should never have happened, or any of those kinds of other emotions that you have when a younger person or a child dies. Um, and especially if it's a person that you know is going to die, and you know that that time for them dying is pretty close. Um, so you're thinking of Graham. Yeah. Graham had it all planned out. He he, he wasn't going to stick around till he was bed. Uh, he had no intention doing that. And uh, before we went off to Italy and then to London, where he, where he had a severe vertical hemorrhagic stroke, uh, which is what you die of if you have vascular dementia, which is what he had. Mm -hmm. um, his family has a habit of dying in London, so <laughs> family tradition. Um, we went high-hoed off to the doctor, and he said, when I want to go, will you help me out? doctor said, yes. And I said to the doctor afterwards, what would you have done? He said, I don't know. <laughs> so I expect you would have said, you know, here's a bottle of pills. Don't take them all with a big glass of scotch. And he said, who knows? You know, yeah. Something like that. Uh, but, you know, I had to swear an oath that I would not put him on a machine that I wouldn't do any of that and and I didn't because it was useless in any case um, and I wouldn't have because I had sworn an oath so he was planning to um, move to another plane before December in my opinion we didn't think he would be around much longer than that and neither did he think that uh, so in a way, it, it's quite liberating. He he was having a pretty great time. Was he in his final yeah, days? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he wasn't going boohoo. He was he was enjoying everything. Um, and and um, that was terrific. We we did a number of things that he wanted to do. We went to Australia again, where he has some relatives. We saw them. Uh, we managed to cross the Pacific on a ship, which he had done as a child. We did that. We went to Scotland, one of his favorite places. Uh, so we managed to do all of that, and he enjoyed it all, except for a couple of you know hair-raising moments. But um, it was great. Was there anything he stopped doing? that he felt compelled in life to do and then realized, well, I'm going to die. Oh, yeah. I don't want to oh, do yeah. this anymore. Oh, he did that much earlier. He, he, uh, 
He wasn't a natural writer. He wasn't somebody who got up in the morning, whistled a merry tune, and sat down to write. He, he didn't actually <laughs> like it very much. <laughs> he, he felt compelled to do it, but that's different. Uh, and then there came a moment when he said, okay, that's enough of that. I, I don't really have any more to say as a novelist, and I'm now going to concentrate my passion on birds. Right. which was his big thing. And that's when he put together the Bedside Book of Birds, uh, which sold a lot more than any of his novels ever did. There's a but that was a labor of love. And I have to tell you that, that it took him 10 years to get that published because when he first presented it via our agent, the publishers didn't understand it. They didn't know what it was. Oh, what's this? Uh, but 10 years later, they got it. And, and, uh, and what was it, if you can sum it up it's, for me? It's, um, what is it that you would call it? It's, um, there's a specific literary term for it, which I can't remember. Um, it's a compendium of stuff about birds, but not about birds as such, about human interaction with birds. So as symbols of hope, as objects of scientific study, as uh, creatures that inspire fear, you know, bad birds, <laughs> uh, scary birds, the birds. <laughs> yeah. You see the birds? Yeah. You can see the strings that are attaching those birds to the roof. It's still scary, Some, though. That I know, movie. but somebody it's... went up and glued those birds on. Yeah. <laughs> Hope they let them go afterwards. Um, yeah. So the whole range of human interact and, and as, as um, subjects for art. So everywhere we went over that period, he would go to the local museum. He would, you know, look in uh, shops. He would, he would collect images of birds that people had made going as far back into history as he could go and as far around the world as he could go. Oh, stories, uh, fairy tales about birds, myths about birds, creation myths, there are a lot of birds in them. Uh, so we put all of this together with the images, and he had a very good um, book designer that worked with him. And he also specified forest-friendly paper, but people worried about that at first. They thought it wouldn't take the color. It actually took the color better. Really? Yeah. So um, so instead of writing fiction, that is what he then did. And he wrote the introductions from his own life to each of those sections uh, about the different kinds of um, human emotions and interactions with birds. Have you lost your interest in fiction at all as you've gotten older? No. No, I'm writing some right now. Yeah, it doesn't appear <laughs> you have. Um, no, I have not. And I, you but know, I was a nat I was what we call a natural writer. Graham was not, um, so it's it's not. Um, I'm not a romantic. I'm not an early romantic. I am suffering uh, type of writer. Right. If I were suffering too much because of writing, I would stop doing it. Yeah. I'm a shallow person. I like to enjoy myself. 
I think that's a great way to look at life. Um, well, I- yeah, but 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 it's not available to everyone. So uh, you can either say these things are genetic, or you could say they're astrological. Your choice. Um, but but we don't all come with the same toolkit, and some people just have more angst, and you cannot blame them for it. Uh, it is who they are, um, and and I'm the other kind. I uh, I'm turning 38 in uh, on November 18th, which is You're your a baby. But we have the same birthday. And do you enjoy that birthday? Yeah, I do. Well, what? I used to not enjoy my birthday because there wasn't anything good you could put on the cake. And Why not? I was the well because it's November. Like, what are you going to put on the cake? Oh, so I don't it know. Wasn't a picture Valentine's... of a scorpion or something? No, <laughs> <laughs> no dead leaves. I mean, it's not. It's not a really uh, good visual time of year. And the only holiday, well, there's a couple of holidays in it. One is Remembrance Day. You're not going to put that on your cake. And the other one is the Day of the Dead, which comes on November the 1st and and 2nd. And, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, My sister's is October 30th, and she's a younger sister, so I always made, made her cakes, and I could put Halloween things on them. But November 18th, Halloween is gone. So I used to resent it until I realized it's Scorpio. It's the symbol of sex, death, and regeneration. Mm-hmm. How good is that? I think it's the coolest sign to be, personally. Well, of course we think that. There is a noteworthy event that happened on November the 18th, which was the um, IRA massacre near McCroon. Uh, and there's an Irish folk song about it that goes... On the 18th day of November, not far from the town of McCroon, the something or other, something or others are marching along to their doom. But the boys in the army were waiting with hand grenades there on the spot, and the Irish Republican army made meat of the whole bleeding lot. Uh, So accept your Scorpio nature. We never start. We never start. But don't start with us. Well, and what I was going to say was I'm turning 38 and I'm, there was a last couple of years, I, there was a, a sadness in me about losing my youth. I'm a little old to be sad about losing my youth, but I think I matured quite slowly. Um, but one thing that did come with that, which I find liberating is I really don't take life as seriously anymore as I well, used that's to. Right. And, and look, you've still got lots of hair. Which I'm, I'm so happy about, Margaret. I can't tell you. <laughs> I can't tell you how it's one of my nightmares going bald. No offense to any bald people out there. I'm well, sure that could be very sexy, you know. Bald? Oh well, yeah. Yeah, I know, but it's not for me. And I let's let's hope together that <laughs> I don't lose my hair. Okay. Um, h- how long were you with Graham Gibson for? Oh, let's see. Almost. Um... Okay, so. Forty years. Forty yeah. years. Yeah. There is a, a sense in this book that he, I may be wrong, but that he maintained a mystery to you. Is that true? I think he maintained a mystery to himself. But but to you, I mean, <laughs> in inspiring 
Well, there's a note I have on uh, a dusty lunch, but uh, I wanted to ask you first if if you found him to be mysterious the way that mystery carries long-term passionate love affairs. Uh, Well, I think everybody is mysterious just to start with. Um, And, and he was a stone cold liar. So uh, of course a lot of things were mysterious because if, if he didn't want to answer, if he'd say, what about so-and-so he would say, Oh, I've got such a terrible remember memory. I can't remember that. So you just had to uh, make it up. Uh, if he didn't want to tell you, he wasn't. He was not going to tell you. Right. Yeah, like that. So just to give you an example of one of his greatest scams, to let you know what I was up against. First of all, he had these big blue eyes. So uh, those are essential for a successful con artist. Um, in high school, because he he hated school. I think a lot of boys hate school. Um. He realized, being a, a military kid, he was, he was, I think he went to 15 schools altogether. So it was a new high school in Ottawa. And he realized on the way to school with a note that was going to get him off school to go to the dentist, that if he ripped up that note in his mother's handwriting and got his friend Al Corrigan to write the note, that Al Corrigan's handwriting was going to be the handwriting a record of his mother at the school. <laughs> Very well played. You can imagine what happened. He said he was he was moderate in the first term, but then, he, of course, he had to finesse the report card. He had to get hold of the report card before anybody else did, and he had to get some ink eraser and wipe out the number of days and half days that he'd been absent and replace them with a more reasonable number. And then he had to make sure that his father and not his mother signed the report card, because in those days your parents had to sign the report card to show that they'd seen it. Uh, and he, he managed all of that. Uh, but then in the second, from, from January on, he went overboard. It was just too much fun to skip school. And he had so many doctor's appointments that the uh, school thought he was sickly. So since his favorite activity in class was to watch the clock and hold his breath to see how long he could hold his breath, uh, he is to uh, be able to say, excuse me, miss, I don't feel well. We'll run along to the nurse's office, Graham, and he'll go to the nurse's office and and go to sleep. Um, So unfortunately, he failed grade 11, as you might imagine. I, uh, I... There was, but it takes a lot of organizing to pull that off. Well, there were very few Jewish kids in my school, and I'm not Jewish, but I remember telling a teacher I was Jewish and then made up a slew of holidays and would call oh, in. You? And and I I hated school too. What do you think it is with with boys in school that seems to seems to go it seems to go against their nature? There's too much sitting down. Yeah. I agree. Uh, first of all, there's too much sitting down. And second, uh, boys in particular at that age don't like other people telling them what to do. Yeah. You may have noticed that with teenage boys. So with teenage boys, teenage girls, having experienced both in my life and having been one, um, 
girls tend to be, especially these days, a lot more mouthy. Like they will talk back a lot more. Uh, whereas boys tend to be devious. They will do stuff that you just don't know about until they're about 30 and they tell you what they were doing. It used you to were be doing the opposite, what? didn't You it? did what? <laughs> what? Didn't it used to be the opposite? That girls uh, were more cunning and boys were more outwardly hazardous? Well, boys were more outwardly hazardous amongst other boys. Right, but not with the author authoritarian. Not so much with right. the parents. Okay. Because parents were more authoritarian, but uh, it certainly used to be being from the age in which there was a girl's door and a boy's door uh, and a boy's playground where they used to knock each other's front teeth out and play soccer and have fights. Um, it used to be much more rowdy, I think, in that department. And the, the big fights amongst schools were Protestants versus Catholics. So the stones and the the rocks and the snowballs would be would be hurled between these groups of uh, different religious denominations. <laughs> I'm I'm speaking late forties here in Toronto, whereas girls uh, they were they were expected to be less rowdy. They 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 weren't always. They were sometimes quite rambunctious, uh, but in a different way. And they were certainly more. Um, Byzantine, Machiavellian, hmm. uh, given to secret cabals, um, note passing, and and gossip. And uh, the other thing about boys, because I was, I had ample experience with them. I was summer camp counselor with boys, little boys. They're they're hierarchical, and there's a reason for the hierarchy. So Neil was top of the heap because he was best at baseball. Right. There was a reason for that. Uh, and Neil didn't even have to fight people. He was just top. And second top was this sort of uh, small little kid with glasses, but he was second because he had the best collection of baseball cards and was an authority. Like he knew all the statistics. So there are different ways of getting into that hierarchy, but it was quite stable. Didn't change around a lot. And the, and there were external reasons for things being that way, kind of like the army. Um, little girls, the hierarchy could change at a moment's notice, and you didn't know why. So, and you, you, you could not find out the reason why this one girl who had been running things the day before was suddenly exiled yeah or downgraded or or something you just you could not figure it out as an adult what was going on right um in a in a, a dusty lunch in the story i know it's it's about some pretty solemn things it's about um the war and Tigger mm. Grant Gibson's father, but I couldn't notice, but help. I couldn't help but notice there was a flirtatiousness to it of Nell and Tig. Because when you love, been in love a couple of times in my life, and when you love someone, 
you become fascinated with every facet of them. Their history, you know, I remember at Christmas time at my girlfriend's house going through their picture books and actually being elated to see them as kids. And who's that? That's your uncle. Who's that? And I got this, yeah, this sense that you or I, I can't figure out whether to call you Nell or Nell you or Tig Graham or Graham uh, Tig. It is fiction. I mean, it's not it's not everything exactly um, yes. If you put if you put everything in, it would be a, a million pages long. Okay. So all all fiction is edited, reality. But there there was a sense that she is continuously um, fascinated by him, and that's why she's reading these letters. And in that, there's a flirtatiousness because it's almost as if she wants his spirit to know that she's still interested in them. Does that make any sense to you? Sort of, yeah. I mean, the the Brigadier General was pretty interesting in himself. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it was a uh, an investigation to try to figure out where those people were, you know, where that, that portion of the Canadian Army was at what time. And I luckily inherited the... Um, Canadian military history books from him via Graham. So I was able to look everything up. I was able to trace, you know, on a map exactly where people were and where they were going and what was happening. And uh, the part about Martha Gellhorn is absolutely true. I've got the letter. Yeah, I read that. And uh, it's in the story, typos and all. <laughs> and the copy editor say, well, this is a typo. I said, you have to leave it. It's in the actual letter. Yeah. But we forget how people, I think a lot of um, modernist poetry of of mid-century, such as E.E. E. Cummings and people leaving off punctuation, that that came from the method of news story tra transmission by teletype, because you, you couldn't, you couldn't have any capital letters or punctuation. You had to spell it all out. And then on the other other side, once it had crossed the Atlantic Ocean, somebody would sit down and put in the capitals and the punctuation. Um, but meanwhile, you had a, a writing style that was that was all lowercase and would say things like stop, that meant put in a period here, new paragraph. You had to spell all of that out. And people have forgotten where that came from. So I think Hemingway, who, of course, was a news correspondent, I think a lot about his style comes from that. It also makes me think of, and I don't know your opinion on him, but I'm dying to know, of Cormac McCarthy. Oh, I think Cormac is very good. Oh, but good. But he's very dark. Yeah. Like very, very dark. Have you read Blood Meridian? I've read, I think, probably just about everything. Um, just about. I'm sure there's some exceptions. Uh, yes, very, um, not very cheerful. Not very cheerful, but spellbinding, you know? Yeah, in a very dark way. In a very dark like, way. Like you think, what catastrophe is going to happen to these people next? But like all great art, cathartic. I don't close it. I'm not depressed after I read it. I think that Well, the separates. reason you're not depressed is you, you think, 
well, no matter what horrible things are happening in, in my life, it's not as bad as yeah, this. It's not as, I'm not being scalped in the in the uh, on the not, Mexico not yet. Texas no, no, desert. No, 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 not yet. No. Uh, yes. Well, I think that uh, that was certainly the Greek attitude towards tragedy. Yeah. So I work sometimes with a. Um, a theater outfit called Theater of War. And uh, I'm doing something with them at the Toronto um, Writers' Festival this this time as well. And and they put on, they started with Greek tragedy, and the tragedy they started with was, was the Ajax. Uh, and they, they present the plays that they put on to select a group. So the, they presented Ajax, which is about a, a military hero having PTSD, going quite crazy. Um, they presented it to war vets, and presenting an external artistic work allows people to talk about their own uh, things via the work of art. But he he pointed out that Sophocles was a war vet himself. He had, he had seen this close up. Uh, a pretty good representation of somebody losing it because they've been through a lot of really um, bloodshedy type of tra uh, trauma. Um, do you know anyone personally afflicted with PTSD? Well, let let us just point out how old I am. I forget. Since you just pointed out, yeah, you forget. That's very sweet. I forget. Okay, having been born in in 1939. Okay, November 39. What had just happened? All right. World War II had just begun. That meant I spent my entire early childhood in World War II, in that atmosphere, and then the post-war period from, uh, let's say, 45, 46 until at least 1950, that was still kind of the war. So you, everybody knew people who were in the war. Uh, a lot of people knew people had been killed in the war. And, of course, there were a lot of people wounded in the war, and they did not have the same kinds of resources then that they have now. So my history teacher in high school had been in World War II. He was very good on the subject of World War II because he'd been there. Uh, and he he uh, had a limp uh, for that reason, but he used to show us old propaganda films. And some people, you know, kids are cruel, uh, some people it was known that if you made a loud, startling noise that they would dive under the desk. <laughs> of course, you, it's very hard to get over those kinds of things and uh, some people can do a, uh, some people are more resilient than others, which I think is, again, a genetic factor. Um, but of course, I, there were lots of them. And a lot of, at that time, um, people who had escaped. So they had escaped from Poland, they had escaped from Czechoslovakia, they had they had known the Russians were on the way, and it wasn't good news for them. They had gotten out. Um, so those I knew those people, too. And 
a bit later in my life, I knew people who had been in resistance movements in France, Poland, and and also Holland. Uh, so you don't get over those things. And the one from Poland said, "Pray that you will never have an opportunity to be a hero." Mm. Because, of course, opportunities to be a hero are usually catastrophes. And change you irrevocably um, and negatively. Yeah, they, they don't always change you. They don't always change you so that you're a puddle on the ground, but they, they change you. Of course they do. Well, the, the jolly old brigadier in um, A Dusty Lunch has PTSD and, and sees these images of people hanging from the shower dead. Yeah, I'm not even sure that was PTSD, but it was certainly something. Yeah. Um, But he, uh, you know, Graham used to say that he didn't know any marriage that had survived the war unless the couple had another child. You mean another child after the war? Yeah. Right. Really? Mm -hmm. That's what he... Well, of course, because the two people had had such different experiences. And... uh, I don't know whether you knew any any war vets, but they usually wouldn't talk about it except to other war vets. And I think the reason for that was they just they didn't understand how other people could grasp what they were what they might be telling them. I don't know any war vets, but I know um a few people who've done a long time in the penitentiary. Well, that'll do it too, but it's it's, a different sort of experience. It is, but it's changed them forever, and it's well, of course it would. It's it's molded their souls differently, and they are um, always watching everything, and they're extremely distrustful, and they come out of there with a lot of it's an unexpressed self hatred that they don't that they don't end up expressing anger deep deep anger or they're paralyzed with fear because they've had to i think with with prison is you're always under the threat of violence like war i think that's that's well one you're of the in things. with a lot of violent people of course and there's no time to relax even your cellmate can you know attack you and i think what that what that must do to the nervous system is is a tragedy extremely and, um, frazzling and and very frightening um, George Orwell, <laughs> the dead interview. Why did yes. you pick George Orwell out of every writer? Well, kind of a natural. Um, so let me point out how old I am <laughs> yet again. So for every novel that I write, I make a timeline for each of the characters I put there. I put the months of the year down the side, I put the years across the top, and in the squares I put world events, and then I put how old they were at the time of that world event. Um, So 1939, November, George Orwell publishes um, 1984, Mm. right before he he dies. Um, So I think it came out in about 49, approximately. So, 1949, I'm nine. Uh, We give time for it to be a paperback and to get to Canada. I read the first paperback edition of 1984, 
uh, in the age when you could buy uh, world classics with sleazy covers in drugstores. It was that age. I think a lot of people read War and Peace thinking it was going to be a sex book. <laughs> a really long like, sex book. Oh, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> well, because of what the kinds of things people put on the covers in those days to sell them. Harlequin um, stuff, right? Oh, that came later. Okay. No, this, this was more uh, noir, so sort of blondes and negligees and draping over the sofa. Right. Um, that kind of thing. So I would have read it, therefore, quite early in my life as an early teenager when I was reading a lot of sci-fi and um, crime novels and horror. Uh, I just finished writing an introduction to Stephen King's novel, Carrie. Wow. Uh, which was his breakthrough book in, in the mid-70s. Uh, so. It's a pretty interesting thing why that has stayed with us for so long. Um, yeah, so where were we? So Orwell, yes, was was quite an um, an influence on me. And, of course, it was an influence on the structure of The Handmaid's Tale. In particular, the fact that there's a, an, a postscript, an afterword, uh, which in Orwell takes the form of an essay about newspeak in standard English in the past tense. Newspeak was, which tells us that newspeak is over. So that's a much more hopeful book than people think because of the postscript. Uh, similarly with Handmaid's Tale, I, t I give it the form of an academic symposium. Because when your history... When you're history, you become either a tea shop, a pub, a street sign, a park, um, an academic symposium, <laughs> an amusement park. Uh, you take all of these other forms. And um, I did the academic symposium rather than the park because, of course, it had to be verbal. Right. I uh, I read 1984 again in preparation for meeting you, and I uh, I had a very strange reaction to it. I read it in high school. I discarded it unknowingly because it was too popular, and I was 19 and snobby, and just I made up something about not liking it to to be cool. But I've read it a couple of times since then, and I read it a couple of weeks ago, and I have to say I had to close it. And I had a strange reaction to it. And I want to know if you can relate to this at all. It didn't frighten me in a societal sense where I thought, mm. oh, this is going to happen. Mm. It frightened me in a spiritual sense mm -hmm. where I looked at my fear and my ego and my terror of public humiliation mm. and how it's shaped the course of my life and my actions and Big Brother being, I guess, my ego, to put it in a kind of facile way, but you understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And I, I personalized it and found it primordially terrifying. And I wanted to know if you relate to that at all or understand what I'm saying. Yeah, well, exactly. And the, the primordially terrifying thing is none of us knows how we would actually react if put under that kind of pressure. You know, who would you betray? 
Well, and how quickly and, would and you I, betray them? I had this awful sense that I would betray someone I loved. I just had an awful sense that I we, would. I think we all have that awful sense. If, if you really want to be scared, um, there's a book called Stasi Land okay. by Anna Funder. And she goes back after the wall has come down and she interviews people who were in the Stasi, which was the East German secret police, who had one spy for every 50 people in that country. Like everybody was spying on everybody. Uh, and then she interviewed people who had been spying on other people. Why did they do it? Uh, it wasn't for the money. They didn't make that much money. Um, I think she comes to the conclusion that a lot of them did it because it made them feel important. You know, it made them feel that they were in on something and that they had a little bit more power than other people. Um, and then she interviews people who are victims of the Stasi. It's just a deep dive into that whole into how all of that works. And very interesting to me because when we launched the Handmaid's Tale film, not the TV series, but the film, uh, which was directed by a German director, Volker Schorndorf, we launched it in West Germany. And then we went across to East Germany because the wall had just come down. We went across and we showed it there. The reactions were very, very different. So in the West, it was all the directing, the acting, you know, the sets, the aesthetic stuff. Um, how was it as a film? In the East, it was very personal. People watched it very intently. Uh, they they were pretty silent, no giggling. And, and afterwards, they said, this was our life. So they didn't mean the outfits. They meant nobody could trust anybody sort of what you said about prison. Um, so it was like, it was a lot like that. And certainly when we were living in Berlin in 1984, and we went across to East Berlin, it was sewed up very, very, very tight. So Czechoslovakia, a little bit looser. Poland, very loose. But East Germany, very, very uh, tightly controlled. People would talk to us, but only because we had a young child with us. So the conversation would be, Oh, die kleine Engel. Oh, what a little angel. Right. Uh, that was safe enough. It wasn't political. And in Poland, we went to book fair, and there were a huge number of beautifully illustrated children's books. And I said, why are there so many beautifully illustrated children's books? And they said, think about it. Right. Not political. You can Not, do it. You can, yeah, and you can you can funnel every creativity you have into that format. Well, with, as long as you sort of keep within the limits, you'll notice that children's books are now the the uh, targets of a lot of book banning in red states in the in the United States. So not so safe. But I mean, even the pictures you can funnel. You could, one could even funnel their disdain for the government into the shading of a picture, and that could be safe. Do you know what I mean? Just you, as some you, sort of outlet. Yeah. Yeah. What the, the Poles did during the German occupation, they, they did symbolic theater. Um, so squares and triangles like that. 
and they understood it, but the Germans didn't. So again, it was a kind of secret way. And there was this guy called uh, Kapuczynski, who was a nonfiction writer. And he wrote things like um, The Emperor. So it was about uh, Haile Selassie. It was about a sort of falling apart, uh, corrupt government. And that was fine with the authorities because it was somebody else's corrupt, falling apart government. But all the Polish readers knew it was really about the, <laughs> the regime in Poland. Uh, so that is that is how symbolic theater works. That is how uh, you know that is how certain kinds of art work. You you can you can make art that isn't specifically about what you really want it to be about, and you can get away with it. You know that Shakespeare's theater. Um, situation was was censored you had to pass a play through a government censor before you could put it on and that's why so many of them are set in places like verona right venice yeah speaking of uh shakespeare i wanted to ask you your opinion on uh harold bloom the critic because i was I was reading his thoughts on 1984, and he dismissed it as a bad book. And I just thought, it just seemed really glib to me to dismiss 1984 as he, I think he called it bad fiction, simply bad fiction. And um, Now, why did he say it was bad? That's the thing. He didn't even elaborate on it. He just, it yeah, was. Well, I, I think it's because he came out of a tradition in which uh, the standard for good fiction would be. Thomas Hardy. Um, so realist, um, you know, w- within the within the bounds of observed social reality as you can depict it today, as it were. Uh, and there there was a school of thought that just dismissed all science fiction. Um, didn't have any time for it. Anything that wasn't realistic. Anything that wasn't Tolstoy, uh, anything that wasn't Hardy that or Flaubert, uh, that kind of fiction, which is very engrossing and yet wonderful, but but it's 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 only this much of the range of what you can do with uh, prose fiction, and it, it's these other kinds of books have other functions that realistic observed reality now fiction cannot do. Sure. So I've written an apologia for all of that. I think it's in in a book called In Other Worlds, in which I talk about that kind of fiction. And uh, you could say that Thomas Hardy is is very bad science fiction. <laughs> it makes it makes as much sense. You know, the the other wonder tales have have a different way of operating. Yeah. By wonder tales, we, we, everything that isn't socially observed, realist fiction. So that would include, um, well, even, I don't know, some things are on the borderline. So John Le Carre, just for instance, the very good social observer. And that mm. that might even be called the, the Thomas Hardy of our time. <laughs> but it gets put on the spy novel section. No, as if it's not real fiction, it's this other thing. Um, Yeah, so I think that's just kind of snobbery. 
Yeah, and dismissing uh, dismissing all other fictions that aren't that kind. And I'm I'm not going to spend too much time on him, but I just want to say there there's one thing I like about him, which is he describes Shakespeare with such passion that I've read a couple of his books, and then I open Shakespeare, and I can't read Shakespeare. I think it's meant to be watched. I can't read it personally. But the way well, he a lot of things come across much better when you see them on stage. Yeah, and but the way he's he's recommended so many books that I've tried to read, and then I can't read them. But his recommendations are, I find, better than the book themselves. You know, um, I wanted to ask you about. Of course, you know Shakespeare didn't know he was Shakespeare. What do you mean? He didn't know he was Shakespeare. He, he was just, he was a, he was an actor, producer, playwright, um, trying to keep his theater afloat. Yeah. He didn't think he was the bard. What's your favorite Shakespeare play? Well, it depends on your age. Um, so right now my favorite one is The Tempest, but it wouldn't have been my favorite one when I was 16. Right. I, one of the most profound artistic moments I had in my life was I was with my dad and we watched a BBC version of King Lear. And, oh, really? um, who's in it? I, I can't remember, but, um, it, it came out, I think in about 1982 okay. and the relationship between the fool and King Lear, I think I was about 12 when I watched mm. it spark something in me and um mm. i think it's one of the things that made me a writer that relationship mm. i still find that relationship wow. mysterious and um and really well, we all got taught in our back in the day we got taught one shakespeare play a year in okay. high school i don't know whether you could make kids do that these days um but the first one they always did was julius caesar why there's no sex in it those are the big criterion for what you got taught in high school. Um, there might have been sex, you know, off in the bushes somewhere, but not on the page. But Julius Caesar, there's a pretty good uh, film, black and white film version of that, which you've probably seen, that has got James Mason in it and Marlon Brando playing Marcus Antonius really pretty well. Really? Yeah. Look it up. Okay, because Julius Caesar, Marlon Brando, James Mason plays Brutus. Um, and How I was old just was Brando when he did it? Young guy. Young yeah, guy, like post streetcar named Desire, obviously. Um, po possibly pre, I'm not sure, but around that time, it's was, black and white, so that tells you something. What a what an actor! What a specimen! Eh? Well, I thought he was a great actor. Oh, I, th I think he's the reason that actors act the way they do. I think Pacino, De Niro, all those guys took what they took from Marlon Brando. You know, you think? I, I think he changed yeah. acting. Yeah. Um, I wanted, do you have time for a few more questions? Sure. I wanted to talk to you about... Um, I have to say about Orwell, though, he wasn't that great um, with women. In in what respect? Well, he does um, he does virgin horror split, 
you know, the wife is this cold fish, the mistress is just up for anything. Right. Um, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, which is a... But uh, one of the reasons for doing the Handmaid's Tale, I thought, what would 1984 be like if you told it from the point of view of Julia? Yeah. And I think somebody has just come out with a book that does that. I have to look it up, but I'm pretty sure I saw that. What's the story like from the point of view of Julia? Julia is a bit of a... Well, she's she's kind of positioned as the perfect girlfriend in that well, book. Uh, she's a... Um, yeah, well, we could go into that. Um, she, she's a bit of a wet dream. Well, that's what I mean. She's is a, that what you mean? She's a, she's a male fantasy. Um, uh, because well, sure, she's... and what do you expect, really? And you should see the cover of, of the 1994 from the drugstore. It's got a Julie with just an enormous front. Um, the Winston Smith is kind of looking down the front of it. And then there's this... <laughs> guy in leather who I guess is a sort of Stasi guard in the middle background but but pretty soft porn yeah well she's unbelievably self-aware and beautiful and completely sexually liberated which I think that, is yeah a, there you go a lot of men's perfect fantasy you know you think I, yeah well I know it has yes, been but she's She's sexually liberated in the direction of a lot of other men. That's not usually their fantasy. No, but that's that comes with it. Oh, you think? <laughs> um, I I want to talk just quickly about another short story you wrote in another book called The Labrador Fiasco. Oh, yeah. Which I really loved. And I was wondering if I could ask you what the basis was for the father in that book. That's my dad. That's your dad. Oh, yeah. He did that. So he had, was it Alzheimer's? Or no, he'd had a stroke. He'd had a stroke. Yeah. Not at the beginning of the story, but later. Yeah. That's a very beautiful story and a very sad story. I read it a couple of times. And uh, great work. But, you know, I, I guess the only story I in Old Babes in the Wood that I didn't see fitting into it, although I liked it, was Hypatia of Alexandria. And I wanted oh, yeah. to know why you put that in there. I think it fits. Yeah? Yeah. What made you write it? Well, it's not about a guy. We've mo but mostly been talking story about stories that have got guys in them. Uh, well, it's, re it's a real story. That happened. Yeah. That actually happened. Um, so. Um, I think it, I think it fits just fine. It's, it's a real piece of history. It kind of balances out the free for all story, um, and it's another. It's it's about a moment in um, history where things turned. You know, they turned very quickly like that. Um, so I'm very interested in those moments. I'm interested in the French Revolution. But I'm also interested in how things get mythologized and fantasized about after they've happened. Mm. So this was a this woman was in her fifties. Nineteenth <laughs> century painters who were doing Hypatia 
she's 19 without her clothes on. You know, it's, it's just um, how how is it that people take uh, historical events and, and real people and turn them into other kinds of symbols and mythologize them? That's pretty interesting to me because it's happened a lot to a lot of people and a lot of events. For yeah. instance, in the in the French Revolution, the terror was not called the terror at the time. That's a, a later label for what they were doing. It's just so, um, when I said it didn't fit, it's just so brutal compared to the rest of the stories. It's no, so unbelievable. World War II is pretty brutal, you know. I don't know. Not in the same way you describe the uh, the. Well, well, it's not so it, up close and personal. It's not so up close and yeah, personal. Yeah, there weren't, weren't getting pe- there weren't people getting their skin flayed off with clamshells, um, but only because um, they had a lot of other implements. Um. One more question. Well, I have a couple more questions, if you don't mind. But this is the last one about um, your short stories. I read Bluebeard's Egg in preparation for this, <laughs> which I, I really, really liked. And I wanted to ask you about that story because I read certain takes on it. Um, I try not to read takes on on, on mm. people I'm going to interview and on their stuff because I, I feel it infects the kinds of things i want to say Mm -hmm. what i took from it was this woman has become infatuated by the mystery of the blankness of her husband that there is actually nothing there but she thinks there is and she's always trying to peek behind the curtain and that's what keeps. well there might be there might be something else there there might be right it doesn't it doesn't appear to be in the book but i wanted to it, i guess what really struck me about it and the truthfulness of it is the way she makes fun of him to her friends and mocks him to her friends yet is secretly so passionate and wants him so badly and i've been in situations like that before where you're so overcome with want for this person. All you can do is kind of. Make patron, them smaller. Pa- patronize them. Patronize yeah, them. Well, to, she certainly does that. To other people. Yeah. And I wanted to know if if you could tell me the theme behind that story, because I, I was reading a, a, some stuff and they said it was about feminism and the patriarchy. I didn't personally so? get that from that story. I got well, that about a a human a, a human affair, you know. It's and- pretty open ended. The, the the Bluebeard story itself, uh, and just by coincidence, I I was asked to do a a new uh, libretto translation for the opera called uh, Bluebeard's Castle, um, which is another take on the Bluebeard story. It's by Bela Bartok. It, it doesn't end with people being murdered in a room. It ends in a, in a different way. Uh, so there are several different uh, takes on it. And in, in one of them, the girl is rescued by um, her brothers. Uh, in Angela Carter's rewrite, she's rescued by her mother. 
quite a wonderful scene in which the mother grabs a horse and rides up and rescues her. Um, in the Grimm's Fairy Tales version, she rescues herself. She gets out of there uh, by being smart, by being clever. And um, instead of carrying this egg around, which she gives to these girls and says, uh, carry this, always protect this egg and don't go into the forbidden room. So they have the egg, they open the room wrongly and are horrified by all the dead people and they drop the egg and then they can't get the blood off it. Sometimes it's a key, but in Grimm's it's an egg. Um, she puts the egg on a shelf first and then opens the room. <laughs> right. It's good advice. I'm just telling you. Yeah. <laughs> Put it on the shelf first. Uh, so I was always interested in the different interpretations of that story. And I did a long time ago when I was living in, in Alberta in Edmonton. And I taught um, probably one of the first creative writing courses. I, I gave the the kids things to write about because they didn't seem to have anything to write about. So I got them to pick tarot cards and I gave them the Grimm's Bluebeard story and said, you know, write a story from the point of view of any object in it. And uh, one of them wrote a story about the egg, you know, the, the egg's point of view. One of them wrote a story from the axe's point of view. Nice. <laughs> that was interesting. Um, so I I had that um, material, as it were. So so what can we make of it if if what she suspects is that he's got a secret room of some kind? What is in his secret room? And right at the end, I anyway, and probably you, and certainly she. Wonders if he's maybe having an affair, yeah, with one of those people who's at the party. Is that what's in the secret room? So in the opera, <laughs> which is a very turn of the century, turned from the nineteenth into the twentieth century, people were obsessed with the uh, position of the artist, and uh, the bluebeard in that story is obviously an artist a sort of Bela Bartok-like artist. And um, the Bluebeard figure is, a, is, a, is, is somebody, somebody who, instead of um, murdering the wives, he turns them into art objects. Do you know the painter called Klimt? So he was an Austrian painter, K-L-I-M-T. Uh, he write he 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 paints these absolutely gorgeous, festooned gold, jewels, sparklies, uh, portraits of women. That's what he's doing, and um, he has one called Judith and Holofernes. Judith is a biblical character who seduces Holofernes, the enemy general, and then cuts off his head. Uh, people have been pretty interested in that for a while. I think Martha Graham had a ballet piece about that in which she she plays the uh, she has, somebody else plays the young Judith, she plays the old Judith, and she also plays the head of Holofernes <laughs> at the end. Anyway, um the character in the Bartok opera is called Judith. 
why. My supposition is that's why. He knew about this portrait of Judith and Holofernes. And uh, the Judith character in the opera insists on opening. He's got not just, he's not just got one forbidden room, he's got seven forbidden rooms. She opens all of them one after the other. And uh, in the last one, there are three previous wives that he's collected and turned them into art objects, like the Klimt paintings. One is morning, one is noon, one is evening, and Judith gets to be night. Mm. And then his collection is complete, and the stage goes dark. What do you think of that? It's a very powerful opera. The, the way you described it sounds very powerful. And that it she is. gets to be yes. night. Yeah. Oh, she doesn't want to be. No. He doesn't want her to be, and and she doesn't want to be, but it's a compulsion. He's an artist. Yeah. I I I guess I wanted to ask you about rel- erotic relationships and so far as Every don't worry, I'm not going to embarrass either of us here. But every erotic, oh, why not? <laughs> every erotic relationship I've had that was truly erotic, I felt the presence of a secret room inside the woman that I could never gain access to. And, and what do you think it's full of? Well, that's the thing. I never gained access to it, and I and I think when I did gain access to it, the relationship changed. And don't let anybody into your secret room. Well, that's the thing. And I and I wanted to know if that's a young person's fascination with mystery or for someone your age, if that still exists as something that ignites passion and eroticism, the idea of a secret room that you can't access. So sex lives of people over 80. <laughs> no, I don't mean I don't mean that and I don't I just meant as you've gotten older. As I've gotten older. Uh well, I, everything is very age specific, okay? And it is for everybody. Um so 60 is not the same as 80. I I wrote a hilarious story when I was um probably 17 or 18. It's very funny to me now. So it's about this old, old, decrepit, dried up, uh, really past it, dusty, no hope left uh, woman, and she's and she's forty. <laughs> Which, of course, when you're seventeen, seems like the end of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but when you're eighty, seems very youthful. Yeah. So it's just a question of where you are on that on that continuum. Um. I don't know. I I think there are a lot of things that are a lot more important um, as you get a bit older. Mm. And one of them is um, shared experience, mutual understanding, um, companionship, having fun. Um, I think sex is very important when you're, when you're, quite young. Yeah. But it it uh it becomes or as I say to young people, okay, uh you're seventeen, you think this is a tragedy, this awful thing that has happened, somebody broke up with you, you're very heartbroken. You're Juliet and Romeo and Juliet, you're gonna kill yourself. Um 
when you're 40, you'll think this is funny. Yeah. And and when you're 70, you won't be able to remember that person's name. Right. Like that. Uh, but these are these are very intense experiences at the time. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a human race. I, right. the, the most intense at the time, yeah, and causes the most immense pain, you know, when you're in your 20s or your 30s, I, I think, and probably in your 40s and in your 50s, too. Oh, um, relax. You're only 38. Yeah. It gets better. I'm not old, Remember, am I, Margaret? No, you're not. No, uh, not okay. at all. You're just a, just a child. Am I? Okay. Uh, yeah, Good. sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind that well, at all. Why am I saying sorry? You're enjoying yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, so when you turn 40, you will probably feel a bit more relaxed. And when you turn 60, you'll be having a much better time. Did you find your life went that way, that you got happier as you got older? I did, yeah. You know, part of it is you know, you know more of the plot. Mm-hmm. So there's less anxiety about how things are going to turn out in a certain respect. I mean, there's still, of course, the usual catastrophes, tragedies, people die and things like that. But um, you're not in the position of of being 18 and wondering whatever will you make of your life. Yeah, absolutely. You already kind of know a bit of it. Um. I want to end with asking you a series of banal questions, but they're not banal. I'm really interested in them, but they're things like, what are your favorite movies? But I really want to know them. Mm. So the first one, can you name me your top three favorite movies? Let's go Night of the Hunter. Okay. Um, I I have a lot of favorite movies. Uh, So I think that's Robert Mitchum's best role. And again, it's a movie. I wrote a piece on it once upon a time. Um, So I read the book and I thought, surely they made some of this stuff up for the movie. But no, it's it's in the book. And the other beautiful thing about that movie is it was Charles Lawton who directed it. I think it was the only movie he ever directed. And he was a painting collector. So if you look at each one of those shots, you'll see that it's framed like a painting, just very beautifully positioned, the people, the figures in it. Uh, he, was, he just had a very painterly eye for how he was shooting it. But also, I, I just... Um, it's very bizarre. I, I don't like the twinkly people in the stars right at the beginning, but apart from that, it's great and very suggestive. It has a lot of layers. Uh, now, what else? Where shall we go to next? Let me see. There's really quite a range. Mm. Certainly, something Graham wanted to see again was the Seventh Seal. Oh yeah, I which love the made Seventh a big seal. impression on our generation when it first hit the theaters. Um. And since the Black Death, as you might imagine, being a fellow Scorpio is one of my interests. And it <laughs> has one of the most famous shots of all time, which is death over, or sorry, the um, 
the arms at the end or the people intermingled at the top of the mountain. Oh, the dance, the, the dance of death with the, dance the, of death, with the scythe. Which yeah. I've always remembered. Great yeah. choice. I, I agree. Yes. That's in my top 10 anyway. Okay. Um, you didn't say anything about Night of the Hunter. You don't like it? I've never seen it. What? I've never what? seen Night what? of the Hunter. What? what? I've seen Time a lot of movies. Time for you to do that. I will. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let's pick something jolly. Just for fun. Uh, and I saw a lot of it because it was a favorite at little girls' birthday parties uh, when I had a little girl. So that would be Singing in the Rain, which has got one of the best continuous dance numbers. Um, that would be Make Him Laugh. He, they, he did that all in one shot. A um, lot of tap dancing in it, which I like because I used to be a tap dancer. How about that? You used to be a tap dancer? Oh, I did. And a puppeteer. Yes. Well, these were youthful pursuits. Yes, we had a little business in high school of, of puppet shows. We got paid for them. We even ended up with an agent. But we only ever did them for five-year-olds, you know, that age group. And we only ever did count the numbers. We had There were two of us, and so that meant we could have four active figures on stage at a time and one on a stick if you were really stuck. So they were they were all um, four or three or two characters on stage at once. So it would be the three little pigs, three pigs, one wolf. It would be little red riding hood, one riding hood, one wolf, one grandmother and one woodcutter and at the beginning one mother. Um, and Hansel and Gretel, two parents, one Hansel, one Gretel, one witch, like that. Um, and you're not, you'll notice they're all about cannibalism, which is what little kids are pretty interested in. <laughs> I'm going to eat you up. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, so what is, the, what is the moral of that? You can make anything talk. Elaborate Hello, on Jesse. That. Oh. Hello, Jesse. Waving at you right here. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, my next question is: I'm going to name four writers. Can you give me a sentence on each one? This is dangerous. Are they dead? Yes. You don't. You don't know. No, they, they are. are. They are. Well, they're still going to hear me. So I, I don't like messing uh, with my opinions of writers. Okay. If if, okay. Would you prefer well, we skip let, that let, one? Well, let's hear who they are. Raymond Carver. Go on. Philip Roth. Yeah. Alice Monroe. Yeah. Virginia Woolf. Okay. Um, these are your faves. Nope, not necessarily. They're yeah. just the ones I'm really interested in your opinions on. Yeah, Alice isn't dead yet. Al, Al, yeah, sorry. I, I, I added Alice Monroe in at the last second. <laughs> I'm going to edit that you're, part out, just you're, so you know. You're, gra you're grasping around for a female person. <laughs> um, yes, well, Alice is a, is a very old friend. Okay. And uh, I've written... Um, 
couple of introductions to her books. Uh, back in the day, I found her an agent, and she and the agent were very close for many years. The agent's name was Virginia Barber, no longer with us, alas. Um, and I wrote a great big long piece on lives of girls and women for the Cambridge uh, Book of Essays on Alice Monroe. So from that, you can gather that I have a high opinion of her. Um, who else? Virginia Woolf. I wrote a piece on To the Lighthouse uh, a while ago, I think, as an example of how your, how your opinion of a book can change as you grow older and see it from a different perspective. So I don't think I really got it when I first read it. Um, but then later on, I, I did. And that can happen a lot in, in I, your reading life. I've read To the Lighthouse twice, and I, I find it in, in parts stunning, but I don't think I understand it yet. I don't think I'm old enough to read it. Okay, keep going. Yeah. Go back to it in about 10 years. Yeah. Uh, okay, then let me see. Philip Roth and Raymond Carver, there there's a bit outside my wheelhouse. Okay. Um I certainly am of an age to have seen Philip Roth emerge as a really young writer. And um of course what really shoved him up the ladder was the graduate the movie. Also did wonders for Dustin Hoffman. And um I think he's a very astute observer of certain kinds of his times, so a, certain, a certain slice of his time. So he would be in the, um, in the war and peace tradition, writing about observed social reality from his perspective, although he ventures outside it from time to time, you know, a what-if book about what if the fascists had taken over America. <laughs> oddly prescient. Um, and Raymond Carver, probably a descendant of Hemingway in a certain respect. Uh, I think In Our Times is brilliant, just for the record. Uh, maybe one of Hemingway's best books. Um, what else can I say about that? I wanted to know if you've ever you know, read some people you, you know they're good but you don't know much what to say about them. Yeah. I just Raymond Carver I wanted to ask the most because he was one of my main influences. Um he was one of the first books that was shown to me as like this is real and I got it immediately. Um yeah. because it was subtle, it was realism. I read him before I read Hemingway. Um yeah. and he's a big influence of mine and I was just right. very curious. Um my last question is, so you've obviously had a pretty fantastic career. You've had a... With its ups and downs. It's had ups and downs. Okay. <laughs> okay, everybody does. Sure. Ups and then downs and then ups and then downs. So Stephen Marsh has this little pamphlet called On Failure, which is about writers failing. And uh, we all do from time to time. Just letting you know that. 
I'll tell you about the books I wrote that were so awful I couldn't finish them. Really? Do you feel that about some of your books? I know that about some of my books. Really? I, I did not complete writing them because they weren't working. Right. Okay. Um, and again, this is just an outward observation. You've had a a long, long love in your life who is Graham Gibson. You've had a child. Is there anything this life hasn't given you, not that you wanted, but that you needed? No. That's lovely. Oh, yeah, but uh, the secret to that is low expectations. <laughs> so high aspirations, but low expectations. So um, I don't... I, People of my generation did not expect anything resembling success. It wasn't available to us when we were starting out. Nobody thought they could be a commercially successful writer. We all thought we would have to have other jobs. Uh, and we did have other jobs. And uh, none of us thought we were going to have disposable incomes. And we certainly didn't when we were starting out. Um, let me tell you about rooming houses and craft dinner. So, mm. uh, so yeah. that so we didn't have high expectations because those those things did not seem to be available to us. And the the age of being able to support yourself writing short stories for American glossies, that like like Morley Callahan, that was rapidly shrinking at that time. And anyway, none of us had agents. We didn't know how any of this worked. Uh, there had been a sort of writing trajectory in the, in the 30s. Then the war just toasted everything. Um, it just stopped. Things just stopped. And uh, there were a couple of huge post-war successes, uh, the tin flute being one of them, uh, because of book clubs in America. If you could get into a book club in America, then then that was a big success. But hardly anybody did that, and and we didn't even know about that because that happened in the 40s and we were in the 50s and early 60s. There, were, there was no uh, paperback industry in Canada, which meant that books got published in hardback, if you could get a book felt good for you, but but it didn't then go on to be sold to a, a paperback outfit, which is how the American publishers were making their their profits in those days. Paperback started in the UK. They were pocketbooks, and then they, no, that was Simon & Schuster in the States. There were Penguin in the UK and pocketbooks in the States, but there just were no um, paperback outfits in Canada yet. came along a little bit later. But it meant that a book didn't have a life. It, it would be published in hardback, and then it would stop. It didn't have a continuing life. Mm. So we just didn't have, you know, we, we were in it for the art. We thought we were all going to go to France and smoke gitan and uh, drink absinthe and die of TB. That's, we, we didn't have, um, I am going to be a big writer with right. a six-figure advance. We didn't think that way at all. So anything else was was gravy. It was extra. 
Nobody thought them. it was much more like Lab OM. You know, you <laughs> burn your manuscript in the fireplace because you can't pay the heating bill. Much more like that. This uh, this was such a great interview, Margaret. Thank you so much for being on my show. I really appreciate it. And you are very welcome. And and, and thank you, Craft Dinner, for keeping me alive in my <laughs> in my little rooming house rooms with one burner hot plates. <laughs> I uh, is there anything you'd like to say to my audience? Um, well, I don't know who your audience is. Who are they? Strange people, I imagine. <laughs> Do you think they're young? Do you think they're old? Do you no, think my my middle? listenership so far is about thirty-five to sixty. Okay, so um, they're readers, and most yeah. and mostly in the United States. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, and do you know what parts of the United States? Yeah, all over. It's very over. strange. And I just got some listeners from Japan and Peru the other day. Wow. So that's amazing. So things are, are moving along and and this interview is this is my only my third episode and I got you. Okay. So I'm I'm uh, I'm grateful. You know, this has been so a good So tell me day. about so tell me you're a friend of Barbara Gowdy's? I'm a friend of Barbara Gowdy's, yeah. yeah. She's terrific. She's very funny. She, uh, she, you know her classic line live on television. No. You may not know the story. Okay, Barbara, she's always looked about 12, and she looked even more 12 on that day, and she had this little mini skirt, and she looked like this sort of vapid Barbie-like child. And uh, she was on a book-reviewed program. It's actually Daniel Richler's program. And she had been given this great big tome to review. And the guy said, uh, <laughs> why did they give you this book to review in, in other words you airhead and she said well she said it's because I've got this great big brain tucked up underneath my skirt it's <laughs> a very good line yeah she's I, full of good lines she's very funny I uh, I love Barbara Gowdy She's so have um, you have you interviewed her on your show? Yeah, she was the have oh, yeah. you you haven't listened to my show before, Not Margaret. yet, but I will now. She was I'm the episode She was the episode before you. Okay, was she funny? She was fantastic. She's always fantastic. Yeah. I've known her yeah. for years and she's uh, How come you know her? I met her at a funeral actually. <laughs> Extremely Scorpio. I met her at a well, funeral and she, uh, when my first no, bo book came out, she gave me a really, really she did. great, I saw that. a great blurb. And, yep. um, and so whose funeral was that? Jackie Burroughs. You are kidding. Yeah. Wow. You knew Jackie Burroughs. I know Jackie Burroughs. I, I knew her. Jackie Burroughs. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Jackie was great too. If you don't mind me asking, what neighborhood do you live in in Toronto? I live in a place that used to be quite a slum when we moved into it. It had uh, cults, um, rooming houses, and uh, call girls. And now it's been gentrified, but that was that's taken place over um, since 1985. Okay. And before that, we lived in Chinatown. I lived in Chinatown for years. And before that, we... What street did you live on? Denison. Okay. 
Um, and before that, we lived on a farm for 10 years. In um, Alliston. Uh, near, well, it was 20 miles from Alliston. Yes, I had to um, learn to drive when we lived there because um, the dog bit Graham. He was out trying to snip it out of a wire fence, and of course dogs will take hold of anything, and that happened to be Graham's head. And it was an Irish wolfhound, which was taller than him. So he had to drive himself to the hospital, bleeding from the neck. And I thought, okay, I need to learn to drive. So I did. Was he okay? Evidently. Evidemment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but by this much, you know, another inch or so, and that would have been it. What are you going to do for the rest of your day? My day? Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? Um, I'm going to... Uh, tweak my Substack payment model, okay. which I just set up last night. Uh, and I'm going to continue writing a short story I'm writing. I'm going to work on my uh, guest list for our Peely Island Bird Observatory um, fundraiser, which takes place on October 3. I'll send you an invitation. You can contribute to it. Absolutely, I will. Since I just gave you a freebie interview. Absolutely. And you can come to it. You can be a warm body and meet strange people. I'd love that. Um, okay, do yeah, that. Okay. You will meet some um, odd people. Okay. What am I saying? I'm there. Uh, you'll meet some people who um, are publishers and also some people who are bird lovers. And sometimes the same people, but not always. And it's going to be at Charlie Pactor's Museum on Grange Avenue, which is right down the street from where I lived when we lived in Chinatown on Sullivan Street. Okay. Okay, you know where that is. Yeah. So Charlie's built this ginormous building right in the middle of Chinatown. Uh, so that's where we're having the event. And um, let me make a note to send you the invite. Invite. Yes, I'm giving people a, two options. They can attend in person and get a certificate that I will design saying they were there. Or they can, um, they can be there in spirit and get a different certificate saying they were there in spirit. When, when is it again? October the 3rd, which is a Tuesday. Well, I'm there. Absolutely. You're there. I'm there. Right. And okay. now at the beginning of this interview, you promised me a signed copy of your yep. new book. So can, yep. can I have that? Will you send that to me? You can bring it to to that event okay. or you can send it to Lucia, one okay. or the other. Depends how soon you want it. Um, I'll just bring it to the event. Either one. Yeah, perfect. Okay, right. you're on. <laughs> Margaret, have a fantastic day. Thank you so and much for being too. on the show. Bye -bye. My pleasure. Now, now you know you're supposed to send me the link. Oh, to the show? Yes. When it goes up, I will. It won't yes. be up for a couple of days. Okay, so when it's up, send me the link. I'll put it out there. Oh, thank you so much. And that, that what we mean... should do is take a screenshot. I will take a screenshot right now. Put your head in a smiley position. 
then I can put it on Instagram. I'm so technically savvy. It's going to be a picture of me holding the camera, smiling with Jesse. Okay, let me just see how these came out. That one's good. That one's good. Perfect. Okay. When when you when we put the show up, um, I will have this picture and I will put it on. Fantastic. Okay. okay. You're looking good. See? Oh, not bad. So are you. All right. <laughs> that's great. Okay. You should do that with each of your guests. Yeah, that's a good that's a good idea. I will. And you can always take the screenshot from your end too, you know. Yeah. Okay. You can do that. All right. Okay. I'm going to send you this. All right, please do. I'm going to send you the picture. All right. You can use that in your self-promotion advertising, Jesse. Well, that's what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye.